0: From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Is adding carbon capture to that natural gas plant extending the life or the use of fossil fuels unnecessarily, or is it best available alternative? And so I feel like there's just a lot of gray area in the specific cases for this one.
1: Yeah, it's always a classic thing, too, because necessary is always uh, necessary to do what kind of a question. Necessary to reduce costs versus necessary to keep the lights on versus necessary to continue existing. Like, these are very, very different spaces, and I think that's also partially why this gray area gets so confusing.
0: Time to untangle the knotty knot that is understanding what exactly is carbon capture, where should we do it, when should we do it, and when should we avoid it? I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners, welcome. Well, whether we like it or not, we are probably gonna have to use uh, carbon capture and sequestration or CCS and lots of it in this world if we wanna achieve any of our reasonable climate goals. Most of the scenarios in the IPCC's sixth assessment report, which is the most recent one, include capturing and storing literally hundreds of gigatons cumulatively of CO2 between now and the end of the century. Just to be clear what we're talking about here, um, I mean CCS in the broadest sense. It's an umbrella term here for direct air capture with storage or sequestration, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, point source carbon capture, basically capturing CO2 from any source, ambient air or exhaust flues, and then storing it away somehow for thousands of years, we hope. It's the net in net zero. And It's sort of controversial because using CCS will be a tricky balancing act. On one hand, true decarbonization needs to do most of the work of cutting emissions. It's just going to be way too expensive if we rely too much on CCS. We don't want it crowding out or competing with the resources that should go toward that kind of true decarbonization. On the other hand, we do need CCS, or we will need it, for... A lot of the hardest-to-abate emissions that decarbonization can't get to, what we often call residual emissions, uh, not to mention the fact that we are going to get to net zero and then probably need to go even further and become net negative globally because we will have overshot our carbon budget. So whether you're thinking about process emissions from steel or cement where there are fewer zero-carbon alternatives... Uh, or whether you're thinking about just getting to negative through things like direct air capture, uh, CCS is definitely going to be a part of the mix here. But there's a lot of debate around it because I think some people think of CCS, and particularly certain parts of CCS world, as being a potential crutch or a way to extend the lifetime of infrastructure that they want to and the lifetime of as quickly as possible. So it can be either thing, right? It can be a crutch or it can be a way to accelerate our path to net zero. So how do we think about for any given application or any given use of CCS, how do we understand, is it a good use? Is it a bad use? What category does it fall into? I think there's a very small group of nerds, most of whom probably listen to this podcast, who intuitively get the differences amongst these different ways to capture CO2 and where they sit in this pecking order. But I think many, many more people do not. And that's a challenge because there are real political and economic forces that are pushing for various forms of carbon capture that can totally muddy these waters. So to try to tease some of this out. I spoke to someone who thinks a lot about these questions, Dr. Emily Grubert. She's an associate professor of sustainable energy policy at Notre Dame, and she posted a a really good Twitter thread recently, probably the last Twitter thread that we're going to reference before we start referencing Threads Threads, uh, about how the same CCS infrastructure actually has a bunch of different use cases. She put it in four different categories, which we talked about. And I think they're illuminating and a good frame for how to think about this broad category and make sure that when we're talking about CCS, we are talking about the same thing. So, before I get to Emily, as always, you can leave us a voicemail if you want to suggest topics or ask questions. Our number is 919-808-5832, or you can email us at catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. You can also tag us on Twitter. I'm sure we're on threads by the time this gets released. Uh, And for now, here's my conversation with Emily. Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about CCS. I want to start with talking about terminology a little bit, because we're probably going to use a bunch of terms and we should be clear on what we are talking about. So I guess when we talk about CCS, carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture and storage, people sometimes use them interchangeably, I think like, do you think of that as being an umbrella term that encompasses all the different ways to capture CO2, whether from a point source or the atmosphere or whatever, or do you think of there being that is one category and some other stuff falls into a different category?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think about it as an umbrella term for a set of technologies, but not everything that falls under sort of mitigative carbon uh, carbon capture and storage or carbon removal specifically. So I think about it kind of in any situation where you're using a chemical or physical process to get CO2 out of something. So it probably wouldn't ever refer to like biomass absorption of co2 as carbon capture and storage even though you could make that argument when i talk about it it's mostly kind of the chemical and physical storage capture mechanisms uh, whether that's applied to mitigation or removal okay and
0: then there's obviously like nuance within that so like what if you take biogenic co2 and run a bex plant where you're doing bioenergy plus ccs then there's then you're in ccs world right? But you're saying the process of the plant capturing the CO2 from the atmosphere is not itself CCS, at least the way we're defining it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like The the tree is not capture. The giant capture unit you put on the power plant is capture in the CCS terminology zone, I think. But yeah, the, the whole thing where CCS is kind of a set of technologies and it doesn't really map that well to an atmospheric function, I think is partially what's so confusing about a lot of this.
0: Totally. And that's, I think, why we want to have this conversation, because I thought what what you did when you laid out this sort of framework, I, it was sort of starting to answer a question I hadn't fully articulated, which is that I feel like in the discourse, whether that is in policy circles or uh, even in investment circles and things like that, we often conflate various subcategories of CCS, or we confuse them with each other. And- it's only going to get worse, not better in part because we're doing more of it of all these different kinds. And there's like now a policy overlay with tax credits that vary for different things. And, and I think it is important to separate all that stuff out. And then as you did start to answer the question of, okay, like we're probably going to do some limited amount of all of this stuff. How should we be thinking about prioritization? What are good uses of CCS and bad and so on? So I want to tease that out together. And we can maybe start by, I thought your frame of the four different uses of CCS is a good way to start. So why don't you walk us through sort of like one are the four things you can do when you are capturing and sequestering CO2?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that gets exciting about this is that I can even convince myself that there are different categories or subcategories. But broadly speaking, I think the first category and the one that we talk about the most is CCS applied to things where we really do have other solutions. And for the most part, that's basically fossil CCS. There's some things I think you can argue that are maybe... Not super well-suited to alternatives at this point, but for the most part, fossil CCS applied to, you know, a power plant that's using a fossil fuel or a refinery or something like that is kind of a, a way to deploy CCS to mitigate emissions in a way that could be substituted by something different. In practice, because this is mostly fossil stuff, I think that ends up looking a lot like lifespan extension or some way to keep using fossil fuels into a decarbonized future. That sounds, I think, maybe a little bit more aggressively judgy than I intended, because I do come down pretty hard on the notion that we need to phase out fossil fuels, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there are no circumstances where we would want to be able to use fossil fuels for a transition or for providing basic energy services or something like that. So it's it's a preservationist approach that's not necessarily always 100% of the time bad, but the net effect is to enable us to keep using fossil fuels.
0: Now, yeah, that— the- <laughs> I always struggle with that framing, the sort of preservationist way to think about it too, because, so let's just like give an imaginary example. So you've got a, let's just say a natural gas power plant, right? Now, to your point, the thing that you're sort of using to distinguish this category is that there are, there are alternatives. So you theoretically, you could shut down the natural gas plant tomorrow and put together a suite of alternatives to replace it. Now, if you wanted to replace it one for one, all the generation from that natural gas plant, that might actually end up being kind of expensive if you did it today. And it'd be doubly expensive if you're shutting the natural gas plant down before the end of its useful life. Um, And so, you know, there's this, there's the like micro version of it. Like in this specific case, is adding carbon capture to that natural gas plant extending the life or the use of fossil fuels unnecessarily? Or is it, best available alternative. And so I feel, I feel like there's just a lot of gray area in the specific cases for this one.
1: Yeah, it's always a classic thing, too, because necessary is always uh, necessary to do what kind of a question. I think I drive my students insane when they use these kinds of words and papers and such because it's a multi-criteria and very value-based evaluation of what you're trying to accomplish, right? So necessary to reduce costs versus necessary to keep the lights on versus necessary to continue existing. Like These are very, very different spaces, and I think that's also partially why this gray area gets so confusing because one person saying, like, yep, I agree with you like we need to do this when it's necessary, might have a very, very different viewpoint of when that is.
0: Yeah. Okay. But so the thing that distinguishes this category from the other three that we are going to talk about, is you're saying, this is uh, adding carbon capture where uh, generally on the combustion of fossil fuels, where we have a readily available alternative that let's set aside the nuances of, you know, the trade-offs that that Alternative presents, but like there is an alternative. There is an alternative, exactly. Okay. All right. So then what's the second category?
1: The second category, I think, is mitigative CCS. So you're avoiding emissions rather than removing them from the atmosphere, but on processes that we don't have other alternatives for. This is also one of these places where you can have a lot of arguments about what constitutes an alternative. But I think things like mitigating process emissions from cement plants fall into this category. You know, you can reduce the amount of cement that you're using. We can come up with slightly different formulations for concrete that are less cement intensive, those types of things. But fundamentally, we're going to keep using cement in ways that are very, very difficult to imagine moving beyond. And cement, just the process of making it fundamentally results in CO2 emissions, even if you did full energy switching, efficiency, all that kind of thing. Basically, you're cooking limestone that drives off CO2. You've got to do something with that CO2. So this is one of those cases where unless you really get rid of cement or come up with something completely different that fulfills the same societal function, there's not really an alternative to having CO2 emissions from that process. And therefore, it's really hard to think about something alternative to a carbon capture and storage process. People talk about alternative chemistries, those kinds of things. But, you know, I'm a civil engineer and I sometimes get a little bit of flack for – uh, following my discipline's uh, conservatism on this, maybe, but there are a lot of good reasons that we are a little worried about moving to different qu- concrete formulations, things like that. When you need a building to stay up, uh, you probably are going to be using concrete. So it's one of these places where it's really hard to think about what an alternative might be. It's interesting because I think with With regard to this category of CCS, I sometimes can convince myself that cement might be the only thing in this category where you need CCS to mitigate emissions from something. You could argue that maybe the same applies to iron and steel. There's some technological development that's actually kind of moving beyond that. But it is indeed true that you need some amount of carbon to make steel out of iron at some level. And so potentially there's kind of an ongoing carbon emission there. There are potentially other ways you could do it, but that's kind of the other example people bring up. And then maybe a couple of other chemical processes, but cement's kind of the huge one.
0: Right. So here you're saying these are basically industrial processes that produce a lot of CO2 emissions. In, in most cases, at least in the cement case and maybe to some extent in the steel case, like CO2 is inherent to the process, not just a result of the combustion to get the heat or whatever, but it may be that as well. And the key point you're making, the distinction here between this and and the first category is like, it's because I want to make an important distinction here too. It's not that there are no alternatives. It's that the alternatives are, earlier stage, I would say. Whereas, like, replace a natural gas plant with something, yeah, you kind of know what your option suite is, and there's a bunch of technologies that are proven to do that. Again, there could be some cost and other challenges. But, like, in the case of cement and steel, yeah, there are actually emerging alternatives, but they're way earlier in the, you know, technology maturity cycle. So you couldn't realistically say today, I'm going to shut down every single cement plant in the world, replace it one-for-one with X and you know, keep building all the buildings that we need to build. We might be able to do that and. In- 10 or 20 years, but we're not there today.
1: That's interesting. I I agree with the distinction you're drawing. I'm actually not sure I agree that there is an obvious, even emerging technology to replace cement, like to reduce the amount of cement, absolutely. But to replace it, I'm not sure I'm entirely on board that point. But yeah, I, I do think that this point about technological development can move things across categories too. Like you come up with some process that eliminates CO2 emissions from steel production that kind of moves it to this category of CCS- even though there is an alternative for mitigation versus CCS where there's not an alternative for mitigation.
0: Right. Okay. So back to our category. So category one is basically add carbon capture to things that have alternatives where you might not need to do carbon capture in the first place. Category two is add carbon capture on point sources where it's just really difficult today to imagine a, a realistic alternative. What's category three?
1: So category three moves to a different atmospheric function, the way that I lay it out. So categories one and two are both mitigation. Basically, you have CO2 that you would otherwise be adding to the atmosphere, and now you are avoiding that actually reaching the atmosphere or staying there. Category three moves into the carbon dioxide removal space, and this, in my categorization at least, is basically around removing CO2 emissions from the atmosphere as compensation for ongoing emissions elsewhere. So compensatory carbon dioxide removal.
0: Okay. And so this is an important, so as you said, we we shifted now from point source sort of avoided emissions world into carbon removal world. And this is where I think a lot of the like discourse gets confused because I think there's A small group of people who are like all in on carbon removal and totally understand the distinction here. And then there's a much, much bigger group of people who think CCS is one big thing and it doesn't they don't really think about the distinction between atmospheric CO2 and CO2 that that otherwise is coming off of a flu stack. So we've moved over into which is an
1: interesting space too, because I think we haven't helped ourselves with that by kind of repeatedly emphasizing that any unit of the CO2 is kind of a ton is a ton is a
0: ton. (laughs) You know, we should be calling them different things. I totally, I totally agree with that. It would actually simplify. I simplify this a bit. but um, but actually the the core thing that uh, that you're describing in this category, which I also think is really important, is this is carbon removal. So this is removing c o two from the atmosphere one way or another. Um, but as compensation for somebody else's continued emissions. So this is in the world of carbon offsets or, you know, people purchasing carbon removals and crediting crediting them against their ongoing emissions. And that's a specific category here, which I think is actually kind of important um, because we'll distinguish it against the fourth category, which you can now describe.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think also the thing about the third category that's interesting is that this is basically what net zero means. So when people talk about removals and so forth, like we're talking about net zero, no change to the atmosphere. So yeah, the fourth category then is how we get to net negative. And this is basically what I refer to as drawdown CO2 removal, essentially taking... CO2 out of the atmosphere that's not being counterbalanced by an ongoing emission. I think IPCC refers to this category as net negative uh, CDR, which is actually extra confusing because when we look at an individual unit of CDR, we talk about whether that in itself is or is not net negative, but same general idea. It's basically you're taking legacy emissions out of the atmosphere, and so any removal that you're doing is being credited against prior emissions that are already there, you cannot avoid them getting into the atmosphere. This one's also really interesting because depending on how you structure a CDR sector, this is either something that you can do before you've reached net zero in just like a pure liability metric where you kind of purchase a unit of CDR and decide what you're applying it to, whether an ongoing emission or a legacy emission. Or from a totally atmospheric perspective, this is something that doesn't happen until after you've reached net zero. Because up until that point, you're always going to be compensating for something, even though it's possible that like the purchaser of the CDR might not be doing it for a liability that they own.
0: So let me see if I can... Um, offer another frame on this distinction, right? So, from a global perspective, to just like first order, you know, we we emit fifty gigatons of CO two annually now. There's part of the reason that so much interest has emerged in carbon removal is that there's an expectation it's going to be really difficult to get to true zero. And so we're going to have, let's just say, 10 gigatons of residual emissions in 2040 or 2050 that are going to be really hard to um, to mitigate. And so we compensate for that with, uh, with carbon removals, removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So maybe we'll need 10 gigatons just to put a number on it of carbon removal, that actually won't get us all the way there because then the expectation is that we are going to need to go negative. We're going to end up just from a global standpoint needing to go negative emissions to deal with the residual emissions already in the atmosphere that you described because we're probably going to overshoot. So then we're going to need even more than that 10 gigatons that comes in the form of the truly net negative stuff. Now, what's confusing about all of that is that what's happening today Is that people are starting to build CDR? We're building the first direct air capture plants, for example. And the way that they're being monetized is that somebody is purchasing a credit, and a credit is a one ton, it's representative of one ton of carbon removed from the atmosphere. But the question is, what is the buyer doing with that credit? Right. And I don't think this actually gets like all that much attention. So if you're, you know, I don't remember. One of the big airlines signed a big um,
1: was it Delta purchase,
0: right? It was it, Delta. No, it was one of the Europe. Maybe it was Boeing or something. I think it was one of the Europeans. Anyway, the point being, you're an airline and you sign you you sign up for a hundred thousand tons of carbon removal from direct air capture plant. What is it that you're doing? Are you crediting that hundred thousand tons against your ongoing emissions? And if so, it falls into one of these categories and not the other, right? And I think that's actually like a. Not a well-understood distinction at this point.
1: No, for sure. And it's interesting, too, because I think the more that... So to back up a little bit, CDR is something that kind of doesn't exist yet as an industry or as a sector. And I think one of the things that starts to get really important is how we actually think about institutionalizing a lot of this stuff and what we decide about some of the governance questions here. Because, yeah, in a situation where... It's entirely a liability model, so I can purchase a unit of CDR and apply that to whatever I choose to, and maybe that's setting myself up to be in a regulated context at some point where I'm going to be told I have to actually show up with a certain number of credits or something like that. That fundamentally gives me as a buyer the right to prioritize CDR applications. Which is, I think, extra interesting in the context of CDR as a pretty limited resource. This is an incredibly energy intensive thing to do for the most part across different ways that you do it. It's land intensive in many cases. It's potentially pretty water intensive in some cases. So There's a huge amount of resource allocation that goes into this that means that you can't actually just do infinite CDR, even if it were cheap. And so by saying like, I get to buy a CDR and apply it to something, that lets me decide what's important. And like you're saying, if we do actually end up in a situation where we of 10 gigatons of emissions associated with like agriculture, keeping people in enough modern energy services and emergencies to kind of get by, whether that looks like diesel generators or whatever, like those kinds of things where you actually really would probably at a societal scale say we need CDR to compensate for these kinds of things. Those don't get prioritized in a world where I can essentially decide I'm allowed to keep emitting something because I purchased some CDR and where that CDR goes is something that I get to choose to do in a world where you look at it from a much more system level of just, you know, deciding that we have a certain number of residual emissions that are going to be allowed to continue. And then kind of having CDR scale to that volume, essentially, that's a really different structure of governments and prioritization for how this limited resource gets allocated.
0: Yeah. Now, to be fair, you know, I think that um, in a lot of the emerging standards and a lot of these net zero commitments and stuff, you know, people are thinking about these some of these challenges. And for example, there's a lot of a big movement toward the reduce first, then offset the rest, or remove the rest, or whatever. And and so it's not, I, I there are, you know the part of the problem with this market, this emerging market in general, is it's kind of the wild west. So everything is happening, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff. But um, but I you know I have I have some hope that that at least the like using carbon removals to make up for the easy to mitigate emissions thing isn't really going to happen in part just for economic reasons. It's like way more expensive to remove CO2 from the atmosphere than it is to take your low hanging fruit emissions if you're, let's just say a corporate. But nonetheless, I do think it's a, that creates a complication in this market for sure. And I, I wonder how you think about the the sort of crediting component of it, as a result of this, because I've been accused. So I'm I'm generally pretty sensitive to like the messiness of the carbon market. Um, I've talked about it on this show before. I just think it's I think it's problematic, and um, I've been accused of, especially in the ca- context of CDR. Like, look, realistically, we're we need to scale this market. At a pace, if if you believe we're going to try to get to 10 gigatons by 2050 or whatever the number is, the slope of the curve of scaling for CDR as an overall market needs to be incredibly steep. And so we can't really afford at this point to like be perfect with regard to what these credits count toward. And so, for example, in this distinction between your third and fourth category of like offsetting somebody's emissions versus uh, getting rid of residual emissions in the, in the atmosphere, like, is that not just a, a luxury distinction that we should have in 2040? Or does it have, do you think it has like real utility today?
1: No, I think it has real utility today. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, I've been buying CDR credits for four or five years at this point, and like, I'm not saying that I'm net zero or anything like that. It's purely just sort of an investment in scaling some of this stuff to see how it goes. But I think it is actually incredibly important to think about these things now as opposed to later, because right now, basically, the CDR industry doesn't exist as such. There are emerging companies. There are some tax credit structures, those kinds of things. But what we decide about governance now, I think, is what we have as governance in 2040 where it really starts to become important. I agree with you that we're not going to get anywhere close to these distinctions actually mattering physically for a long time, but in terms of what we set up, what kinds of liabilities we're creating, and what kinds of investments, capital structures, you know, basically power structures that we're creating at this point. It's really easy to adjust those before they exist. Once you've created something that is incredibly, incredibly predicated on a specific market structure, it's really hard to change that. I think where it becomes incredibly important, actually, is just in this in this context of having something that's purely for-profit and purely potentially based on uh, compensatory CDR that's selected by an actor as opposed to kind of being the, the net impact of a bunch of decisions that we've made regulatorily or otherwise in terms of who's actually allowed to keep emitting under these different circumstances, mostly because you can end up in a world where basically you increase that level of residual emissions by opening up a declaration by buyers essentially to say that my residual emission matters. And yeah, in terms of just creating the capital infrastructure, all that kind of stuff, it's going to look the same either way, but you basically extend the amount of CDR you have to do if you provide license for some of that compensatory CDR to be applied in places where you don't really need it.
0: Okay, so the point of... Part of the point, anyway, of this uh, categorization is to then ask the question of, okay, it's like, does this help us prioritize a little bit? So back to the four categories, just as a reminder. Number one, add carbon cap point source carbon capture where there's an alternative. Category two, add point source capture where there's probably there's not currently a good alternative. Category three, do carbon removal um, use it to compensate for somebody's continued emissions. Category four, do carbon removal period and don't use it to compensate, right? So how do you think about how much of each of these things we kind of want to be doing and how do we think about prioritizing them?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question. And this is also an interesting question in the context of the compensatory removals where I think there are some things that you do kind of have to do and some things that you don't have to do. So there's probably a sub-distinction there too. Nitrous oxide emissions from agriculture are kind of the classic one of really, really hard to get rid of and kind of the basis of a lot of the food system that allows us to have a population the size that it is. So getting rid of that is not super... uh, probable. Their compensatory emissions actually do probably fall into a kind of higher priority category than like, you know, compensatory emissions because I feel like not upgrading my natural gas fired furnace or something like that. Um, And so I think when we think about priorities, really recognizing that there's Not just social license questions about a lot of this, but actually resource constraint questions starts to guide how that conversation goes. With CDR in particular, I think we would do well to really recognize this as essentially a depletable resource in some ways. You know, there's an amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that means we're not going to run out anytime You know, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, exactly. But because it's energy intensive, land intensive, those types of things, like you actually can use it up. And so I think that that's a really important frame on the removal side. On the mitigation side, I think really recognizing how infrastructurally intensive some of this stuff is and kind of the fact that you are hitching your wagon, so to speak, to some industries continuing to exist if you end up investing a ton of money and effort into certain of these pathways also helps kind of point to prioritization. So like one thing that I think about a lot on the mitigation side is basically how many technology generations might you expect if you do assume that we're going to reach deep decarbonization by the middle of the century. So for power, that probably looks like one generation if you assume a power plant lives kind of thirty to 50 years Um, and then hypothetically you move on and the fossil fuel industries that are supplying those kinds of interests uh, infrastructures probably are a lot smaller or don't exist, but there's other reasons that you would expect that to kind of phase out over time. With stuff like cement, you might actually expect that we have some small amount of mitigative CCS kind of indefinitely. So maybe that's, you know, three or four technology generations before you see really something coming up to replace that. But then with something like CDR, this is potentially as many technology generations as you could project out because after you kind of move past the stuff that you need to compensate for, some of which will happen indefinitely, some of which will kind of phase out over time, you still have this drawdown pool. And so in terms of prioritization, when we think about like technology investments, I think really focusing on the stuff that we know we're probably going to need for a specific atmospheric application for a long time is a better move. In terms of actually what we're applying the various CCS, CDR technologies to then yeah, I think thinking about how to what what would a CCS or CDR minimal system look like? What do we not like about that and then what do we maybe want to add to that in addition to the kind of absolutely necessary pieces of it? How do you think about one of the odd things about all this is that at the
0: end of the day with basically all of these options, with the exception of some versions of CDR that are like mineralization or something like that. But in basically every other one of these options, you Get the same thing, which is a stream of CO two gas that you've got from somewhere, um, and then there's a bunch of infrastructure that has to get built to do something with that, right? There, there are CO two pipelines that are getting built, permitted right now in the Midwest and sort of the Corn Belt around around um, ethanol plants. Uh, and then obviously there's sequestration. You got to do something with it and let it stay there for tens of thousands of years, hopefully. So now we're permitting pore space and class six wells and so on. All that midstream and downstream stuff, or, or by the way, you could also utilize it, like turn it into jet fuel or whatever you're going to do. All that stuff is common to, across all these approaches, right? It's not unique to one or the other. So there, there's also, I think, an argument to be made that like, if we're going to build a carbon management industry, it is to the benefit of the entirety of that industry and all of the things that we do agree that we need to do to just kind with of, some, within some limits, kind of maximize how much of it we capture now, because that is going to get us to the point where we have all the midstream and downstream infrastructure we are definitely going to need no matter what. So, I, you know what I mean? Like, is there an argument that, um, look, it's okay to do more of the category one, which is clearly the least valuable? carbon capture category, that is what's gonna spur the development of CO two pipelines and class six wells. Or yeah,
1: I'm I'm glad you bring this up because I hear this argument all the time and I disagree with a lot of the way that it gets framed. Um, for a couple of reasons. So I think one of the things we haven't really talked about is just there are a lot of justice implications for the way that this stuff gets worked out, particularly with the category one types of things where you're generally preserving fossil infrastructure. Like there are other emissions, there are other reasons why people want to move away from fossil fuels other than CO2. And so by having a situation where you are actually expanding the amount of fossil fuels you're using because You know, CCS is energy intensive, all that type of thing. That has an extraction burden. It has an upstream, like, transportation burden, those types of things. There are other emissions other than CO2. But that all aside, I think even if you're just looking at this from a CO2 perspective, the idea of maximizing now because you're going to need the infrastructure anyway fails, I think, in one major way, which is that it's not conscious of where that infrastructure needs to go. And in a situation where you're designing linear infrastructure like pipelines, storage resources and such, around where Old fossil plants are now, rather than on where ideal locations for like a DAX facility might be or something along those lines, I think you end up with the pipelines in the wrong places, basically. And that is not necessarily something where even the same amount of infrastructure built under one paradigm or the other is kind of going to ultimately get you to where you need to go. I think it does fundamentally change what this build out looks like in ways that are probably inefficient for the longer term. But yeah, because linear infrastructure lasts a lot longer than point source infrastructure even... Like a pipeline, you're going to rebuild in the same place probably many times if you need to, because it's really hard to cite new ones, those types of things. And that's probably going to be true for a long time. That kind of stuff lasts maybe 100 years, 200 years, as opposed to 30 to 50. You really want your pipelines to be in the right place in this sort of situation. And yeah, I think the paradigm for what this looks like, if you're really fundamentally orienting around CDR, which maybe means a lot of co-location of plants with storage resources so you can minimize the transport infrastructure, maybe means you have some spur lines to some mitigative stuff that's a little less efficient for them but is really optimized around that CDR. Maybe you don't need quite as much networking as you do with something that's mitigative. Maybe you don't need quite as much um, redundancy, those types of things. So I think you do actually end up in a really different place. This point on redundancy, just to kind of Tie that one out. I think one of the other really big infrastructure distinctions between mitigation CCS and removal CCS is basically that it matters if the CO2 is re released in a very different way for something that's mitigative versus removal. This even maybe applies to compensatory CDR a little bit, but it's a real big problem in kind of a net zero circumstance if you have a mitigative CCS project releasing CO2 by accident. That means you need pipeline redundancy. It means you need ways to manage that CO2. Otherwise, with a removal situation, it's not good if you re-release that CO2, but if you have to shut down a pipeline for a couple of months to repair it, it's not necessarily going to be creating a giant atmospheric problem to stop the CDR for a couple of months. And so you might actually be able to get away with a much lower intensity of like pipeline infrastructure if you're oriented that way than you are around mitigation for the same kind of assurances atmospherically.
0: How do you think about utilization? So let's just take um, synthetic synthetic jet fuel as an example. So there's you know in order to make synthetic jet fuel you basically you need CO2 and hydrogen that CO2 is going to have to come from somewhere could come from any one of these four categories well I guess it can't come from the fourth one cuz the fourth category is is remo- res- removing residual emissions it doesn't do that cuz at the end of the day you're still going to combust your jet fuel and it's going to get re-released so any of the first three categories um does the scale of the need for uh, some alternative to today's jet fuel uh, affect your thinking a little bit about how we capture, how what kind of CO2 we capture and from where?
1: Not really, because I think mitigative CO2 capture still ends up having an atmospheric burden, even if it's used in sin fuels. Like, who gets the benefit of having captured it in the first place is maybe an open question in some of these. There's some really interesting uh, concerns about double counting and so on in those circumstances. But like that CO2 ultimately is still a contribution to atmospheric levels at the end of the day, whether it's because of the plant or because of the jet fuel, you know? So it actually is kind of a, it's a one plus zero instead of a zero plus zero kind of equation. If you're looking at something like direct air capture for utilization that results in re-release. So I think that it does actually matter quite a bit. We don't really have the structures in place to ensure that that, accounting is really happening and looking at some of the project announcements or ideas that i've seen where both ends of the spectrum are kind of claiming the the mitigation is challenging especially because then you start to get into people saying well this is also an avoidance offset credit because otherwise it would have been fossil jet fuel in addition you end up sometimes with like three credits for you know, not having actually prevented that CO2 from reaching the atmosphere. So those kinds of things, I think, do actually really matter when we talk about utilization that results in re-release.
0: Yeah, to me in that scenario, actually it is an avoidance credit. It's an avoidance or whatever credit, but it's it's an avoidance of emissions from what otherwise would have been traditional jet fuel. But in being that, it is nothing else. Like the direct air capture that led to that is actually not removing CO2 from the atmosphere. You can't count it as that. Um But this is the problem with these markets.
1: And yeah, which is also kind of interesting because like what we're actually talking about when we think about avoidance credits depends on a counterfactual. And having the possibility of avoidance credits kind of forces people to thinking about the counterfactual being business as usual as opposed to like, well, we have to do something else other than this, so what's that going to look like? And I think you end up crediting against a counterfactual that is maybe higher emissions than it would be absent that opportunity. Yeah.
0: Okay, so to draw it all back then, how do you think about prioritization? What should we be doing of these four categories? How should we be uh, incentivizing each of them and, you know, help me like rank order the importance of each of them?
1: Yeah. So in my view, I think we need to at least try to get to a world that minimizes the amount of CCS that we're doing, whether that is for mitigation or removal. And basically just because It's infrastructurally intensive, it's energy intensive, all of these kinds of things. Like, we would rather do less waste management than more waste management, kind of all else equal. All else equal gets a little tricky sometimes because we actually do need to decide what we're trying to accomplish, and more waste management sometimes helps you manage wastes, (laughs) then that's not a bad thing. But I think... Doing the stuff that we have to do in order to reach net zero and then net negative needs to be the priority in my view. So really figuring out what does CCS look like in the cement industry and what are the residual emissions that we really don't see being able to manage any other way than compensatory CDR. Like having those answers and seeing what that looks like, thinking about what those infrastructure buildouts look like, I think really needs to be where we start. And then the faster you can get to the point where you're actually able to be doing drawdown CDR, the better off you are.
0: All right. This is a lot. And, you know, we didn't even get into like, we listed the four categories. We didn't list the subcategories of the four categories that you originally came up with, but there's only so much we can do. So uh, I think we did did as well as we could. And I appreciate you uh, helping me think through all these complex nuances of the emerging CCS world. Yeah. Thanks
1: for the conversation.
0: Dr. Emily Grubert is an associate professor of sustainable energy policy at Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to topics on today's show. And Postscript, as always, is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.